Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Church. My name is Rex. I'm just one of the members here, and it's my pleasure to be sharing God's Word with you today. If you want to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Philippians 4, it's where we'll find our text for this morning. Philippians 4. This is a text that is loved by many of God's people. It has administered comfort to hurting and weary souls for thousands of years now, and I hope this morning it does the same for us. I will read the text for us and then pray for our time together. Let's start in verse 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, we are weak, frail, and needy sinners. We are aware of our own sins, we are aware of the dangers that we face in this world, both within and without. And so, God, we come to you this morning asking you for help. Help us, God. Make us a people that are joyful and not anxious. Do this through the ministry of your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is an interesting passage. It's always interesting to have the opportunity to preach outside of the context of a larger series. You have one passage, and that's it. And so, uh, what better passage for the world in which we live right now than one that would comfort us and encourage us and seek to calm our anxieties? Uh, but as glorious as this text is, and as helpful as it's been to me personally for years, it is, uh, it's been somewhat difficult to discern the structure of this text. Uh, if you've spent any time reading Paul, you'll recognize that at the end of many of his letters, he'll include a string of sort of loosely related commands or instructions. So if your Bible has headings over the different sections, uh, you might often see a section at the end of one of Paul's letters called final instructions or further exhortations or um, personal instructions or something like this for these sorts of sections. And in those cases, you don't necessarily feel the burden to unify each of these individual commands that Paul gives. Uh, they're just sort of a, a peppering of different, maybe loosely related commands or instructions. 
but we don't want to force some sort of overarching theme over them that, that isn't found in the text itself. However, in the passage in front of us, here coming to the end of the book of Philippians, uh, it seems at first to be one of those sort of loosely related, various instruction type texts, but it does have more to it than that. There does seem to be a thread sort of loosely tying the pieces of this passage together, um, and that may be understating it a little bit. Hopefully that will become clear to us as we spend time with the text and seek to apply it. Because when Paul starts off in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So we might expect, if we spent any time with Paul, he's now going to unpack this theme of rejoicing. Uh, give us grounds for rejoicing or something like that. We would expect a therefore or a, or a for after this. Let's see. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Okay. So, now we can either do the hard work of trying to relate these things together, or we just say, okay, Paul is obviously going to be kind of peppering us with uh, commands that aren't necessarily closely grammatically related to each other. So, we would expect to see another command following this one. Let's see. The Lord is at hand. Okay, well, that's kind of a declarative statement there, not really an imperative, not really a command. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything, and the rest of the passage sort of flows like we're used to seeing in Paul. So th those first couple of statements make this sort of an interesting uh, passage to find a structure for. But I think that once we reach the end, we will see sort of a, a, a certain color or mood to this text that uh, will give it some unity. So let's begin. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Now joy if you've spent any time with the book of Philippians, is a, a theme that we see over and over again. This isn't a large book. I mean, this isn't, you know, 10, 12, 20 chapters. I mean, it's a four-chapter book, but we see words like rejoicing or joy pop up over a dozen times in those four chapters. So Paul isn't introducing something new here. In fact, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, the previous chapter, he's going to say, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he says at the beginning of chapter 3, I have no problem repeating myself when it comes to this theme of joy. In fact, I do so for your safety. And then what does he do here in our text? More repetition of this theme of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. So he's not bringing up a new theme here at the end of, the, at the end of his book. He's reigniting something that he's already touched on and already repeatedly touched on in this book. And then we also see this word always, rejoice in the Lord always. And in our text, this sort of introduces a pattern that we'll see with the language that Paul uses. This text is true in a wide variety of circumstances, namely all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you kind of scan the rest of our text here, you'll see words like, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Whatever is lovely, whatever is good. Six times he says the word whatever. If there is any, if there is anything. So we see this sort of language that's Paul, that Paul uses in this text of any, all, every, everything, always. So, I think this gives our text a sort of ultimacy 
or, or totality. The scope of our text is total in the Christian life. I think that this obviously applies to any circumstance at any time for any Christian. That should be good news to us. So that we can always find ourselves in a posture of joy or rejoicing. Any Christian in any circumstance has a bona fide privilege of being able to experience true, deep, and secure joy. Remember, the man who is writing this to us spent several nights in a prison singing hymns in the middle of the night as he is bound up in chains. Rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, when he writes these words, he's writing to the Philippians from prison. So rejoice in the Lord always. The the source of this letter coming from a prison cell is not lost on the readers. They're hearing the saying, Paul, who is in prison, is telling us to rejoice always. So convinced is Paul that he commands them doubly. Rejoice. And then he says, again I will say, rejoice. George Herbert, um, an old Anglican uh, divine who wrote much poetry, comments on this text. A brief aside, if you've never read the poetry of George Herbert, I commend it to you. But alas, George Herbert comments on this text and he says, Paul doubles his words here to take away any scruple of those who might say, What, Paul? Shall we rejoice in afflictions also? So Paul says, Always rejoice in every circumstance. And then, lest anyone say, Really, Paul? Always rejoice. Always rejoicing. Paul says, yeah, again I will say, I'll say it to you again, rejoice. But there's a little phrase that we've skipped over here when we jump from rejoice to the word always. We skipped over the crucial phrase, in the Lord. And this is common in Paul, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord. It's important to note that this rejoicing is to be found in the Lord. So again, our eyes are not fixed on present circumstances here. The, the, the founding of this joy in God himself removes its dependence on present circumstances. So now we are freed up to rejoice always because our joy is found in the Lord. It could be said that your experience of delight in God has nothing to do with your physical circumstances. Now that, that phrase, that statement would need a little bit of nuance, but I think it's on the face of it, it's true. Your experience of delight in God, joy in God, and that can look different ways, we'll see that, has nothing to do with your physical circumstances. Can you imagine a life like this? In which, even in the face of the most frightening circumstances, you find yourself to be sincerely, deeply joyful. That's what Paul will continue to say later in this chapter. So if you read further in the chapter, in chapter 4, Paul will say, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He knows how to rejoice in any circumstance. How? He continues later in the chapter, 
The next verse is familiar. I can do all things, abound, be brought low. I can face hunger, I can face plenty. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The focus and means of this rejoicing is the Lord himself. And so it is in our text, rejoice in the Lord always. So, I think we're safe to ask this question. If we find ourselves in a circumstance in which it seems impossible to have joy, we must ask ourselves, have we lost the Lord? Has has Christ been taken from us? Because if so, then indeed we have means for not rejoicing. But as long as we have Christ, we have a, a reason for rejoicing and we have the very means of rejoicing. Can we be severed from Christ? By no means. He has united himself to us in such a way that he feels and experiences our miseries with us. When the church was persecuted by Paul, Christ says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul never persecuted Jesus himself, but he persecuted the Lord's people, the Lord's bride. And so our Lord counts that as persecution of himself. When we suffer, Christ suffers. He counts it as his own suffering. Jesus says, if you give a a cup of water to the least of these, my brothers, what have you done? You've given it to me. So whatever befalls us, good or ill, Christ counts it as something that has befallen himself. So solid and mysterious is the union that exists between Christ and his people. So can such a bond made by Christ be broken? Another way of asking it that we may be familiar with, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? No. So, should anything threaten our joy, our rejoicing? By no means. For our rejoicing is in the Lord, and in the Lord who has united himself to us in such a way that he cannot be separated from us. One commentator has said, it is our duty and our privilege to rejoice in God. At all times, in all conditions, even when we suffer for Him or are afflicted by Him, we must not think the worse of Him or of His ways because of the hardships we meet with Him in His service. There is enough in God to furnish us with joy even in the worst circumstances on the earth. If a Christian does not have a continual feast, it is his own fault. End quote. So even if we lose everything that we hold dear in this life, yet we still have Christ, we must rejoice. So that when the cares of our hearts are many, his consolations will cheer our souls. One more consideration here, and I briefly alluded to it. It's the reason for our rejoicing that this text is concerned with, not the way in which we rejoice. So when we hear Paul say, rejoice always, we're not to assume that that means we should just always be jubilantly singing. Rejoicing could look like loud, jubilant singing with the congregation of God's people in the assembly, 
Or rejoicing could take the form of silent, humble tears in solitude. Christian joy can have a multitude of expressions, but it will always be distinctly Christian joy in that it is focused upon and accomplished by Christ in us. Let's continue. Look back at your text. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So these next two phrases are kind of what brings some difficulty in structuring the text because it seems the passage would flow better without them, right? I mean, imagine, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, etc. It seems like the passage would, would flow better if these statements weren't there. But alas, here they are. And so we must trust God that he knows what he's doing and he has a reason for putting them there. So this word reasonableness is an interesting word. Uh, The majority of translations, of English translations, render this as gentleness or a gentle spirit. Maybe the translation you have in your lap, if it's not the English Standard Version, has one of those statements. Others translate it as forbearance or even moderation or graciousness. Only the ESV in the great host of English translations Only the ESV translates this word as reasonableness. And when I mean translate, what I mean is the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so what we have is an English translation of inspired Greek words. So if there's a word like reasonableness that seems odd in this text, it can be helpful for us to look back and say, okay, what word is this translated from? How have other translations translated this word into English? What does this word mean? Well, instead of trying to establish which English word is best by looking at other uses of this word in the New Testament, this Greek word, uh, I'm going to seed that, uh, as one commentator said, quote, this is one of those terms that is just difficult to pin down with precision. So, um, two commentators have given sort of general descriptions of what this word means. The first... Matthew Henry says, this word signifies a good disposition towards other men. It's just a good disposition towards your neighbor. D.A. Carson, prominent New Testament scholar, has said, this word refers to the exact opposite of a spirit of contention and self-seeking. So you see where we get the word gentleness coming up a lot in other translations. It's it's dealing with our affairs with other people. Are, Are we gentle? Are we patient with other people? Or are we self-seeking and contentious with other people? So it seems similar to Paul's command in Philippians 2.3. You don't have to turn there. But in Philippians 2.3, just two chapters previous, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That seems to kind of capture the same idea that Paul's referring to here when he says, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So just as you, Christian, should be marked by joy, also, all people, especially those outside the church, should recognize in you a gentleness, a peaceableness, an unselfishness in your dealings with others. And notice, the point here isn't that you just be gentle and reasonable in the church or with your closest friends. The point is that all people, 
And when Paul uses words like that, he typically means not just you, but outsiders as well. That all people would look at your behavior, your life, and see a gentleness, a peaceableness, an agreeableness that would be known to everyone. So a, a brief application at this point. We are approaching, quickly, a political election cycle in an environment where discussions about these things are increasingly hostile, quick-tempered, mean-spirited. In this atmosphere, Christian, you are to shine as an example of forbearance, patience, gentleness, tenderness, kindness, level-headedness. By all means, have your political opinions. But as you communicate with people inside and particularly, particularly outside the church, whether in person or online, though I can think of few things less helpful than an online political discussion, they happen, I hear, let everyone recognize in you a peculiar gentleness and patience that makes you attractive to them, that makes your Christ attractive to them. And is this not the natural outflowing of a heart that is rejoicing in Christ? Why in the world would people belonging to Christ's kingdom be worked up and threatened by affairs of Caesar. It is natural for man to be threatened by such things, but we are not normal men and women whose citizenship is just American. We belong to the kingdom of Christ, and we rejoice in Christ always, and therefore, we conduct ourselves with reasonableness and gentleness and peaceableness, particularly in a season like this, in political discussions. So inwardly we rejoice, externally we are known to be consistently gentle and reasonable in our dealings with others. Uh, I'll say a brief comment about the Lord is at hand, I need to move quickly. Um, I just want to note that it's unclear to me and it's unclear to, to and you'll notice in the first half of this sermon I, I referenced commentators several times, that just means that I had a particularly difficult time uniting the pieces of this opening sentence or two of this paragraph. And so I lean on people that are wiser than me, and then I find they don't know what's going on here, which just increases discouragement and preparation. And so it's unclear to commentators uh, exactly what the Lord is at hand is doing here. One of them said, the presence of this statement is just as surprising as its intent is obscure. So the fact that this statement is here is just as surprising as it is mysterious as to what it exactly means. So it seems to mean one of two things. Option one, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice and be gentle because the Lord's return is at hand. His coming is imminent. It's close. So sort of temporally, time-based. He's close. He's coming. So what concern would you have to get worked up if you're rejoicing in a Lord that's coming soon? Be reasonable and let that reasonableness be known to others. Or, option two, 
Because the Lord himself is always near to you. He's promised that he will be with you always. The Lord is near. He's at hand. He's close. Don't be anxious about anything. So you see how it can, it can function one of those two ways or perhaps both ways. Works sort of bilaterally. It's working with the statement that comes before and the one that comes after. Um, regardless, I think we can confidently say that with a view of Jesus, we have the ground of both portions, before and after. So mentally, we can sort of put a because on the front end of this statement and a therefore on the back end. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. So let's continue through our text here. Let's consider anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to spend just a few minutes addressing this topic of anxiety, um, and even addressing it sort of culturally. I would imagine that there are some of you in the room right now who are eager to hear what the next few minutes will bring on the topic of anxiety. I would imagine that this week, some of you perhaps found yourselves unable to sleep because of anxiousness, or maybe you've even manifested some physical symptom of stress and anxiety that you've experienced mentally. You've experienced panic, and perhaps those Physical symptoms that have manifested have been heart palpitations, shortness of breath, dizziness, shaking, an overwhelming fear of impending doom or dying. And then after these episodes of anxiety or panic, you then add the fear that you're going to experience them again, which sort of increases the snowball effect. It's amazing, isn't it, that mental activity can manifest itself in such real physical ways. And this is common. Others maybe don't have such a physical experience with anxiety, but you do have some lingering sense of worry that pops up frequently. Maybe even a sense of doom that sort of hovers over your mind and heart. Maybe it arises from some specific situation that you're in. Disagreement with a boss or a coworker at work, familial strife, national unrest or threat of harm to you or your family, or instead of this sense of worry honing in on specific circumstances, maybe it's not attached to anything at all. There's no discernible reason that you feel anxious or worried, you just do. And that can be even more unsettling. This is a plague in modern society. Some would say it's the peculiar disease of our generation. I'm an educator, so I'm a high school teacher. So I hear high school students talking about this sort of thing frequently. High school students having panic attacks. Recent polling data showed that 70% of high school students identify anxiety as a, quote, major problem among their peers. In fact, That data showed that anxiety was at the top of the list of perceived problems among teenagers. And the solutions offered by the best and brightest minds of our society 
often fall short. So as an educator, the things I'm offered for kids in my classroom that are struggling with anxiety are things like, have some stress balls handy. Boy, global unrest is really troubling. Huh, never mind. No, it isn't. Um, practices like mindfulness and breathing exercises. Again, these are the best and brightest minds of society that are offering these as the solutions to this sort of pandemic of anxiety. I think it's pretty obvious that this falls short. And this obviously isn't just a, a problem for teenagers, though it is. Obviously, life tends to get a little bit more complicated once you graduate high school, not less. So many adults struggle with these problems. Our lives are attended with anxieties. They distract and perplex our minds so that our thoughts seem wrapped up in our own troubles or perceived troubles. And it can be debilitating. And you can try to kind of logically deal with those anxieties and say, okay, no, I'm overreacting. I'm fine. Everything is fine right now. This is just my mind playing tricks on me. But in doing that, you're assuming that fear and anxiety submit to logic, which they don't. Fear and anxiety are often illogical and irrational. And even those among us that may be more naturally serene and peaceful, say, no, I don't really struggle with anxiety or worry that much. One way to kind of test ourselves in this area, how do you handle rest and solitude? Do you avoid quiet? When you're alone, is there a need to have music or video or TV turned on? If so, we kind of have to wonder, what is it that we're avoiding in silence and solitude? Why are those things so unnerving to us? So how are God's people, people who have gained Christ and apparently consistent joy in Him, how are we to respond to these things and think about things like worry and anxiety? And most importantly, what are we to do about it? Besides um, stress balls and breathing exercises and the power of positive self-talk. Well, the text tells us, Look back at the text. Do not be anxious about anything. So we have a prohibition there. Don't be anxious. A negative command. And I don't want us to just skip over this phrase because the Bible does this a lot. It gives us these commands that have sort of a, a simplicity about them. Don't be anxious. Now, this can be discouraging to an anxious person because as someone who's personally dealt with anxiety... When you're trying to explain anxiety to someone who's never experienced it before, you usually get the same reaction. Oh. Sounds rough. Can't you just kind of, you know, snap out of it? <laughs> Think about something else? Oh, snap out of it. Thank you. That's helpful. This command can kind of feel like that. Don't be anxious. Okay. Don't be anxious. I understand now. I don't think that's the case, even though it can feel like that's what Paul's doing here. Because even if the verse stopped right there, and Paul just said, don't be anxious about anything, the message of the whole Bible to anxious and worried sinners 
is that God offers to us eternal comfort in Jesus. God has intentionally revealed himself in the scriptures as one who accomplishes things on behalf of his people so that we need not ever worry for God will always act on behalf of his people. So when the Bible tells us, don't be anxious, there is so much material. There's a treasure trove of of stories and material and truths from the Bible underneath and behind that command that it should administer comfort to weak, anxious, worried sinners. Jesus himself has already said, don't you know that you can't add a single inch to your stature by worrying? Don't you know how futile it is for, for you to worry? So instead of immediately responding to hardship with anxiety and care, may we instinctively run to the sacred refuge of prayer instead. That is what's offered to us in this text. John Calvin put it this way, We are not made of iron, and so we have been given this consolation, to unload into the bosom of God anything that harasses us. God knows our frame. He knows we are not made of iron, but dust. And so he gives this promise that if we are anxious, but we go to him in everything with thanksgiving, through prayer, we let our requests be made known to him, what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For the anxious Christian soul There is no more attractive idea in the world than that you may experience God's own peace guarding your heart and guarding your mind. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words to Peter when he says, Peter, I've prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. So for us, it is God's own peace that safeguards our hearts and our minds, safeguards our faith from the fiery darts of the enemy. So to one who's overwhelmed with anxieties, the imagery here of security, stability, and peace is the most attractive thing in the world. It's like relief from intense pain, the quenching of an intense thirst. Charles Simeon describes this peace this way. Quote, the heart that was agitated becomes serene. The thoughts that were distracted become composed and an inexpressible sweetness pervades the whole man and turns his sorrow into an occasion for rejoicing. So a quick word of application concerning anxiety. We have, at this moment, much greater occasion for experiencing anxiety and unrest and a lack of joy than we did a year ago at this time. The world just feels less stable. Economies, markets, general health, and security, these things seem a little bit less sure than they did maybe a year ago at this time. So it could be easy for us to be consumed with worry about the things that we see going on around us. Or it could be easy for us to just retreat into something like entertainment so that our minds aren't troubled with the things that we see around us. Anxious Christian, let me remind you that God knows your frame. 
He is acquainted with the fact that you are nothing more than a weak and needy and frail sinner. So take heart, rejoice, and take your requests to him. Because God has introduced these circumstances, whatever they may be, global or personal, into your life only out of his wisdom and his love for you. John Newton, if you've been here long, you won't be surprised that I typically quote John Newton whenever I have the opportunity. John Newton has said, God chooses for his people better than they could ever choose for themselves. If they are in heaviness, there is a need be for it. And he withholds nothing from them, but what, upon the whole, it is better that they should be without, so that their trials are certainly as much mercies as their comforts are. Your trials are just as much a mercy of God to you as your comforts are. Why? Because God has chosen it for you. Why be anxious about the things that God has allowed to come into your life? See, the, the lie of anxiety is that I, me, I can and must do something about the situation. My efforts and my concern somehow will prevent further negative effects. I must be concerned with this. See, there's an intrinsic sort of self-centeredness and self-reliance that exists in anxieties. Hence the divine call to action here. What are we told to do? Don't be anxious, but instead, prayerfully and gratefully, take your requests to someone who can actually do something about them. Why hold on to them yourself? You are a creature. You are frail. The very reason you feel so threatened should be the very reason that you take your requests to God, who can, in his omnipotence, actually act. Christian, Jesus is near to you, and God is able to meet your needs. So take heart and rest. The Puritan John Flavel said this, Though the arms of your faith be small and weak, they embrace a great Christ. And it is that great Christ who begs us to come to him with our anxieties, to come to him with every request, to unload, to roll our troubles onto his shoulders instead of trying to bear the burden ourselves. This sort of peace is offered it can be had. In fact, it is the duty of a Christian to live a life free from worry. However, it means that we must stop acting under the illusion that we have the capability to solve our problems. Instead, we must make our requests of God with a grateful and needy heart. And the Bible promises that the result of this sort of prayer is a God-given peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ. And this is certainly more effective than positive self-talk or a stress ball. Finally, we come to the last paragraph, which we'll deal with under a single point. So Paul has dealt with inward rejoicing, inward anxieties, inward peace, and now Paul will transition from those inward realities where he'll, he'll finish up with a more outward focus, practice. We'll see that there are two imperatives in this coming paragraph here. Think on these things, Practice these things. 
So we'll see here that Paul's not merely concerned that the Philippians manage their anxieties through individual communion with God through prayer. Paul is also concerned with their behaviors. And we already saw a glimpse of that before in the first paragraph. So let's look at the first part. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers. It's funny, this is the second time in two chapters that Paul has used the phrase, finally, brothers. Finally, brothers. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Time won't permit me to dwell on each of these categories that Paul lays out, but it's important to note this, that the Bible commands your thoughts. We can often just forget the fact that we are constantly thinking about something. Have you ever considered the content of your thoughts over a given period of time? So take, for instance, the previous week. Or if it's easier, just yesterday, or just last night, or maybe even this morning. If we could see a pie chart of the content of your thoughts, what would it look like? What would take up the largest pieces, segments of that pie chart? Upon what are we expending our mental energy? It's sad that we who call ourselves Christians often spend our mental energy on things that are not honorable, not pure, not commendable. And even if they're not impure, maybe they're not you know, wicked, sinful things, they're perhaps worthless things. Trivial things, worldly things. What a better antidote for anxiety than to consider some things that are outside of yourself, outside of your own problems. Good, noble, beautiful, commendable, lovely things. But we instead tend to think about things that are trivial and worldly, and we do so to our harm. Romans 8, 6 says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So by dwelling, dwelling, thinking long on the happenings of the news cycle, perhaps, worthless forms of entertainment, maybe, or maybe gossip, or events that are happening in other people's lives, if we dwell on those things, we move further and further away from spiritual mindedness, and therefore, we move ourselves away from the peace that we desire. On the other hand, as we consider things that are good, true, commendable, excellent, we experience peace. And this is the duty of a Christian's thought life, is to consider things that are good and commendable and worthy. Then Paul moves to practice what you've Learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So just like we saw earlier in verses 4 and 5 where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul is concerned both with inward realities, our rejoicing, our peace, and he's also concerned with outward behaviors. That our reasonableness be known to everyone that we'd be practicing the things that Paul modeled for the Philippians. 
For Paul, it's insufficient for the Philippians for them to say that they were joyful and thinking on things that were praiseworthy if they weren't also walking, living, practicing in accord with those things. In the previous chapter, Paul commanded them, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And here he's just reiterating that, saying, what did you learn from me? When I was with you, what did you see me doing? What did you hear me saying? Practice those things. So it seems that he's encouraging them to pursue a discipline of the mind. He's commanding them to practice the same discipline of mind that they saw him evidence in his life among them. And what happens as we practice these things, as we think on things that are good, and then we practice these things? The God of peace will be with us. So like I said at the beginning, this passage seems to kind of touch upon several different topics. But this one statement, in my opinion, serves to bring a a unifying perspective to this whole unit. It's the inverse of what we saw at the end of the first paragraph in verse 7. So look back at the first paragraph, the last verse in that paragraph, verse 7. What will happen as we pray instead of being anxious? Well, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. And then at the end of the second paragraph, what do we see? As we think on things that are good and we practice these things, the God of peace will be with us. You see that that inverse there, the peace of God the God of peace. I think this idea of peace and a peace administered by God and his presence with us brings sort of a unifying mood to this passage. And it's interesting to note that both of these things, the peace of God and the God of peace, are a result of some action on our part in the text. So look, if we pray instead of being anxious, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. And if we practice these things, the God of peace will be with us. So this whole passage has served to sort of describe the kind of Christian who is characterized by peace. A peace that is administered by God's own presence with that person. So there's a portrait underlying this text of a man whose life is not characterized by God's peace. He is an anxious man or woman, disagreeable with others, undisciplined in his thoughts, inattentive towards those who should be his role models, lazy in the practicing of things that those role models have shown to him. But there's the explicit portrait of the Christian whose life is indeed marked by the peace of God. That Christian is not worrisome, but joyful. That Christian is always considering Jesus. That Christian is gentle and agreeable to those around him or her. That Christian is frequently found to be communing with God in prayer. It's a Christian whose thoughts are consistently pointed to things that are beautiful and praiseworthy. A Christian whose life is marked by God's peace. And this is the life that we should be striving for, hoping for. However, in closing, I want to say a brief word to those among us who may not be Christians. Or perhaps those, if there are people watching online who are not Christians. 
a non-Christian can live a good moral life, seems to have the absence of worry and anxiety, sort of an easygoing person. A non-Christian can have that life, but only, as it were, by accident. And worse, that person has no grounds for eternal peace. Peace cannot and should not mark that person's life because they have no basis for peace. Because instead of having peace with God, that person, the scripture says, has enmity with God, hostility. The God of the universe has set, them, has set himself against this person because of sin. But that same God, wonder of wonders, the same God who is at war with the sinner offers glorious terms of peace to the sinner. So, peace with God results in a life of peace. This is why Christians must be people who are not worrisome, are not anxious. We must be people of peace because we have peace with God. And how is the sinner who is at enmity with God to be enticed towards God except by Christians who live lives of joy and peace? So, unbeliever, the message of the gospel to you is to repent of sin and turn to Christ so that you may have peace with God and an experience of peace in life. Christian, the command to you is much the same. Turn from sin, including the sin of worry. What pride in ourselves we must feel to think that the God of the universe is unable to help us in our weaknesses. Repent of the sin of worry and turn to Christ. For every one thought you give to your anxieties and your trouble, give ten thoughts toward Christ. Though the arms of our faith be small and weak, they embrace a great Christ. And this is good news for sinners. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are prone to worry. It is easier for us to worry about things than to bring them to you in prayer. It is common for us to feel a sort of hindrance in our souls uh, coming to prayer. And God, we just want to say we repent of holding on to our anxieties, holding on to our worries, And we want to bring those things to you. So God, give us the presence of mind to think on things that are good and noble and commendable, not to dwell on anxieties and worries. God, we can only do these things by your grace. Give us joy in you always. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.